Atchison. I am at the Empire State South in the private dining room as lunch goes on. And across from me is a chef that a lot of this world knows because of very many times on TV and uh, as a chef in Atlanta. But that's Kevin Gillespie. Kevin. What's up? What's up? I don't know what is up. Living the dream, man. You just opened up a restaurant. That's what's up. <laughs> I did, yes, yeah. You open just... up a restaurant that's probably very busy because it's on the Beltline. For those of you not in Atlanta, the Beltline, how would you explain uh, the Beltline? You know, I've been trying to have this conversation with people, and I'm like, it's sort of like the Greenway. It's sort of like, uh, you know, it's, I don't know. It's uh, Atlanta, a city where no one can walk anywhere. The Beltline is the only aspect of that sort of walkability and neighborhoody kind of connectivity that you see in every other major city, but you yeah. don't see it in Atlanta. I think it was really d- designed with a lot of uh, winks towards the uh, uh, that area in New York that's got that links the hotel, yeah, the High Line, the High Line, yeah, exactly. And and in that sort of way, there's been a lot of uh, development and gentrification along that corridor, and it's just it hooks up Pond City Market and goes north. And so you've opened up a place called cold beer yep. where is it it's so it's in the the newest port, part of the Beltline, which is called the eastern trail i think and so it's uh you know it's a hundred yards or so away from crog street it's a little over a mile away from pont city market it's basically right now i think it's the kind of the southern edge of the Beltline, and so in some ways that's great and in some ways that's that's bad you know so it's a good place to access the Beltline because we actually have parking which is weird and not common on the Beltline, but at the same time, it's not in the dead center of everything. Has anybody died in a scooter accident right on the Beltline yet? They haven't died yet, but I we watch it on a daily basis, yeah, and it's, it's I don't know what it is about 35 to 45-year-old women who have a girls' night, but as soon as they're done and they're a little wine drunk, they all think they need to ride scooters, and it never works out. There's, there's a lot of danger inherent in scooter culture, I yeah. think. I have it's, to go home and remind my wife who falls in that category. Like, when you go out with your girlfriends, like, regardless of the way you feel when you're done, like, don't get on that scooter. Leave the bird behind. Yeah, exactly. Leave the bird behind. Just use your legs. <laughs> so uh, this is the third restaurant you've got right now. Yep. So you got Gun Show. Yep. You've got Revival yep. and now Cold Beer. Yep. So Gun Show Gun Show's a really interesting restaurant. <laughs> I mean, it takes this premise of kind of the dim sum cart and kind of elevates it. Right. Kind of like State Bird Provision did in San Francisco. But it's a great idea. Um and I've eaten there a couple of times, and it's, the food's always really interesting because it's from one of the individual chef's perspectives. Right. And then it's sold to you by that individual chef. So there's there's ownership of it. Right. So has the concept really worked? <laughs> it's worked incredibly well. It's, um, you know, from an operational nerdy standpoint, it's really ultra self-policing. So um, it, no one walks up to someone and hands them a dish that they're not proud of. Like, so at the end of the day, like the cooks really, really, really care about what they're making. So you don't have to spend a lot of time wondering, Oh, I wonder, gotta make sure they don't burn it or over season it. Like that stuff just doesn't really happen. The challenge is that it's all chiefs and no Indians. So, you know, everybody who works there, all eight chefs who are on the line are at minimum have come as a sous chef from somewhere else because it, you, you kind of need that skill set to even be a line cook there. And so there's a, it's a hard group of turtles to herd, um, but it works. It keeps the restaurant full and it keeps it super dynamic. And the food is usually very interesting because people get to be very expressive. Now, you know, they get some guidelines and I certainly weigh in a lot with things I'd like or don't like. But at the end of the day, we let them sort of drive their own boat. And is the menu changing every day there? It changes every day. It changes hard in the sense that. Uh, the 100% of the menu changes week to week, 
But okay. something changes each day. Just not everybody's allowed to change their dish on the same day because otherwise it's just chaos. But it can, given that, it can be really expressive of seasonality, of trends, For of sure. different flavors that are coming on board. It's always struck me as a place that's really it has a lot of umami bombs going yeah. on. There's a lot of pickling and preservation aspects to things. So it's been a really interesting restaurant to watch grow. Yeah. Um, and it's in a part of town that I think is really on the up and up and has been for a long time. Uh, Atlanta's changed a lot. a lot. How has it changed? How long have you been here? Now? So I grew up here and then I moved away for college and then I moved away to cook on the West Coast and I came back in 2008. And so I've been here since 2008. And even since then, in that 11 year time span, I've seen drastic changes in like what this restaurant scene actually looks like. And um, when we built Gun Show in 2013, right, um, even that part of town that we were in in 2013, I remember guests being like people who had followed me from Woodfire, which was kind of on the cusp of Buckhead would go, where in the world did you build this restaurant? Like, you know, they were afraid to actually come to dinner sometimes. But they're saying kind of that funny. and they were on Cheshire. Woodfire was on Cheshire I, yeah, Bridge right. Road. You know, I know. Well, is, maybe they you know, had other plans sometimes. after dinner on yeah. Cheshire Bridge Road. But, um, you know, they would come and it was a little dicey. And it was in the beginning. It was certainly more dicey. And nowadays it's just another exp- – like we didn't realize it when we took the space, but it's on the Beltline. It's just on a chunk of the Beltline that hasn't been developed yet. And so right. all of that big development has pushed that direction. And it, all it has done for us, honestly, um, we were really fortunate that, that Gun Show kind of caught fire early and has stayed very full and very busy. So the the boom and people moving that direction hasn't really changed our business level because we were already doing pretty pretty well. But it certainly has made it something where we don't feel so alone on an island anymore. There's just a lot of stuff. There's happening a lot around of stuff us. happening. Yeah. Around. There's been a lot of info in that area. And then the other restaurant you've got is Revival. Yeah. So explain the concept of Revival. So Revival was just it literally came out of a conversation that I've had with with some friends one day from out of town. Some friends from Portland, Oregon, who came to visit me and they said, "Where can we go get some really good Southern food?" And I was like, well, you know, and we talked about it a bit and they're like, no, no, like, like you're, you know, we want like really home style Southern food. And I just couldn't answer them. I was like, I honestly don't know where to take you. Like a lot of the places that were here aren't here anymore. And the few that are, are really just kind of open cans and dump stuff out. And, and so I was like, I guess I could call my grandmother and see if like we can come down and have lunch with her. Um, and so after that conversation, I thought, well, I don't know if the market wants it. I don't know if we even really need it. Maybe I personally need it. And so I just decided to build a very small neighborhood restaurant in Decatur that cooked, uh, you know, kind of from the tome of my childhood. And so um, nothing super fancy at all. It's just the things you would expect. It's it's fried chicken and it's, you know, stewed turnips and collard greens and the things I grew up eating. And, and I just like green it. Green bean casserole? Do you have green bean casserole? We do sometimes. We use my wife's recipe, actually, for that. My wife is not a cook, but she does make a mean green bean casserole. So we do include that from time to time. But it's that's what it is. And it's just meant to be, um, if anything, it, I think of it as like sort of a balancing act to gun shows intensity and the fact that it can't sit still. It's the ADA, you know, ADHD kid who just like, ah, like can't, you know, make up his mind. Revival's is revival a meet and steady. three? It's not a meet and three. It's you know it's um it's a la carte. Everything is it's it you know if, for the folks who remember the restaurant craft, it works a lot more like that. You just pick whatever you want, and so you that, build. That it was that the way, most so. difficult part of Empire State South at the very beginning because it was meant to be an oat meet and three at the very beginning, right? Right, and systematically it just did not work. So we yeah. came to it within a week, and it was exactly the same problem Tom had at craft initially, which is at craft you could choose the snapper with this accompaniment 
But you could also say, I want the snapper cooked this way right. with this one of four sauces. Well, the problem with that is, is there's so many possible results. Right. Yeah, so exactly. the tickets would come here <clears throat> in the beginning. And if you chose your pork with uh, beautiful collard greens and mac and cheese and some sort of pickle salad, um, the tickets like on a four top would be like two exactly. yards long. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, I can't, we can't do yeah. like a, it's yeah, we we've had we've unfortunately I think revival is an example of not being able to still we've still struggled to figure out how to make that work because in the beginning we really pushed a family style meal where you got kind of everything. You know, you sat down and depending on how many people you had, you know, you got tons of different stuff. Like and we'll, Dillard House. Yes, Dillard, Dillard House style. House. Exactly. Yes. Dillard and, House is in yeah. North Georgia and is this old school place uh in Dillard, Georgia that is you just walk in there and it's just kind of like you just kind of say yes. Yeah. And suddenly there's this food everywhere on your table and it's like this southern exactly. cornucopia. Right. And that's what we wanted in the beginning. And what we found was that we were hurting ourselves from a business standpoint because people wouldn't come back very often because we killed them with food. They would leave with – it was it was hilarious to watch that our costs were really bad, not because of how much food we were giving, but because we never factored in that every table needed about 15 to-go boxes. And so the paper cost, the bag and the yeah, box and the supplies. sticker and the tape and the time and effort, and we'd send people out with with more food in leftovers than they would have gotten if they'd ordered from three Chinese restaurants at the same time. And it was just – it was comical. And so we throttled back on that and went to an a la carte system and have kind of stayed there ever since. Um and the food is still great, but I'll be honest that, like, for me, I struggle because I just want that family-style thing. I wanted that restaurant to represent my family. And when you go to my grandmother's house, there's way more food than you need. But from a restaurant standpoint, like, you're right. If we When we try to do the meat and three thing, our tickets are so long that you have to fold them in half. And yeah. then, uh, and and then, then you lose something. Yeah, and, and then we do family-style, and people are like, I'll come back next month after I've worked off the calories from this meal. So. Yeah, because in, in that scenario, you have the impossibility – uh, to do what's what's really necessary in a busy kitchen, which is fire four of those. Right. And when they're all different, you can't do that. Yeah, And exactly. so it really hamstrings the kitchen right out of the gate, and we found that right out of the yeah, gate. Yeah, and then there's so. no, you know, so then you end up being stuck in that situation where you can't do any volume, but you also can't charge any money for the stuff that you're doing because it has a perceived value. And so then when those two things align where you have to do low covers, and low revenue as you know, no one here has to be a mathematician or an economist to know that doesn't work. Yeah, the wheels are going to come off pretty yeah. soon. So, so let's go back to what, what being on TV brought to the scenario of what you do every day. Cause I've got a, I always equate it to though TV occupied a very small amount of my actual real routine in business. Um, it was an important, it created a larger business card and gave us yeah. access to things that we wouldn't have before. For sure. So what got you on TV? A failing restaurant. <laughs> as weird as that sounds. I was at Woodfire? Yeah, Woodfire. You know, I had taken Woodfire from Michael Tui when he kind of moved away to California and uh, I had two I had two business partners in it. And we took Woodfire because I had been Michael's CDC many, many years before that. And I was on the West Coast and he called and said, I'm I'm ready to be done with this thing. You come home and take it. And I said, you know, I was 24 and I was like, I don't have any money, Michael. And he's like, no, no, I got the guys to buy it. You just come back and be the chef there. So I came home to take over being the chef of Woodfire. There was this big parade practically for when Michael left town. And when he did, unfortunately, all the business left with him. And we were struggling hard. I mean, we were just, it, there were nights where we were doing only a handful of people. And at the same time, 
we were, you know, I was getting nominated for a James Beard Award, and I just couldn't wrap my head around how we could be lauded by the critics and empty, just stone dead empty. And so, lo and behold, one day, um, these producers call and they say they're from this show Top Chef and I had never heard of Top Chef and I thought frankly it was a friend of mine playing a trick on me and so I wasn't nice to them over the phone and I said <laughs> some very unkind things and hung up on them uh, and they, thankfully they called back and they were I, like and, this is perfect that's yeah. the drama we want yeah, they, so called they, they called back the next night and I was like dude it's not funny man I'm in the middle of service and I hung up on them again and then on the third night I realized that my friend is not nearly dedicated enough to make a joke that goes on three days so I was like I'm sorry, I may have misunderstood the situation. They explained what they wanted me to do, and I said, I'm not really interested. I'm really focused on this restaurant. Well, that night, we did zero covers. No one came in, and I just sat in the office and was like, focused on what, watching this thing die? And so you know, I went to my business partners and said, I don't know if this will do anything, honestly, but I think I'm going to have to try to do something, and, and this is the only thing I know to do. And so I just called back the top chef folks and said, yeah, I'll come to your show. And it, I'm glad I did. It was the best thing I could have ever done. It very much saved that business. And it certainly was like kind of a rocket ship for, for what I was trying to do and propelled me to a different, different place in my career for sure. Yeah. It's funny in Chefton, we always, we always, you know, peer in on each other's businesses and what we're doing and, and different aspects. And we pull technique from each other though. We sometimes it's not even you know, a direct me asking you how you're cooking this. Right. So I just see it and I understand it. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. I just remember that Mikri salmon that you used to do. Yeah. Uh, with cooked on the skin side yep. solely yep. and then baste it a little bit. Yeah. No, not, not even. It not just even kinda, it just sort of like you just let it rock on the skin side for quite some time. And it but just it's, sort of it's a beautiful presentation. Thing, so. But yeah. I was like, but sort of that picking up of technique from other chefs is always interesting. But I remember that one technique and gleaning it from you over yeah. the years and being like, hey, how can I use that? It's just funny. That that's how chefdom works. Yeah, it does. Like, I, you know, it happens all the time. Like, and what's cool now for me, be, having multiple restaurants and having guys work with me that are really uber talented is that now I get to, like, watch their stuff and actually, like, pick up stuff. Like, pick up techniques from the guys who work for you. Like, as funny as that might sound, like... Yeah, I was just in the kitchen at Cold Beer yesterday watching Brian Baxter do something, and I was like, "Wow, you know, I, I don't know, I've ne that's never occurred to me to do that." And like, it was, it's cool. Like, I love seeing, I love being in a position now where I can actually kind of see that that I type mean, of stuff. But so. I think that's the best part of chefdom, and I think it's the reduction of anxiety, which is a very anxiety-ridden job, anyhow. But For sure. I find that anxiety is lessened if I position myself as just this constant learner. Mm -hmm. If I can learn from everybody around me all the time and pick up, because the younger generation of chefs that we have in our kitchens now know a ton of different stuff. Right, right. Oftentimes they do. Sometimes they forgot some of the most basic details well, of cooking. For but sure. They understand like, some of the most <laughs> complex things that can really be interesting. Right. And our job is to teach them how to roast it, a chicken properly. Yeah, exactly. I actually literally had almost an identical substitute chicken for scallop uh, and had that conversation yesterday where I was like, it's funny to me that we have some of these guys who know how to do some incredibly complex things, but they can't sear a scallop to save their life. Like they somehow missed that step along the way. Like I yeah. don't really know what's going on here. And so, yeah, you know, and that's fine. I'm fine with being that guy who shows them the the basics that they seem to have neglected. And, you know, I, my joke is that they know how to shoot food into outer space, but they can't actually trust a chicken. So, um, right. you know, that seems to be the case. Yeah. So. But it's it's all too common now. They know some really complex things that are totally revelatory to me. Uh, yeah, the most basic functions are a little bit outside of their realm. Yeah, yeah. So in 
in in doing this, TV comes first, and then you started writing books. Yep. So you published two books very successfully. One got a James Beard nod for Best American Cookbook. Yeah. I remember seeing you at that awards. Um, so that was, I mean, it's totally cool uh, to, to see how, well, let's whittle down to this. Do you like the term celebrity chef? Oh, man. I, I personally, no, I don't. I abhor um, it. I don't like it. I it's so to me it's almost an oxymoron because i don't really know that being a chef is about being a celebrity um i that being said i genuinely every single day am reminded of how fortunate i am that the celebrity component still exists in some degree for me because it helps me a lot and it has brought yeah. a lot of people into my fold including my spouse like who i would have never met had it not been for that television show so i'm incredibly fortunate for it but I can't bring myself to refer to myself oh, no. as yeah. a celebrity chef. Every time I even have to say it, I kind of like choke a bit on my own vomit. I, know, I even I have a hard time having people refer to me as chef who don't actually work for me. Because to me, right? it's an <laughs> yeah. internalized yeah. – uh, it's, it's a signifier within the confines of my kitchen. Sure. And it means a lot there. Right. But out on the street, when somebody yells at me, hey, chef, I'm just like, I, uh, that, I know. I'm you. Right. I left the gym the other day, and a gentleman passed me on the way in, and he was like, hey, chef. And I, was, I just said, hey, how are you? And then I got in my car, and I was driving away thinking to myself, like, has that – is that – has it really like garnered that point? Like I don't walk past someone who I know to be a physician and say, hi, doctor. Like I just, I, you yeah. know, I just, I don't know. I don't do that. So I think it's very funny. I would, that it's, uh, Gupta I would for him. Doc. Yeah. You know, yeah. there are a few people who I would, you know, if someone walked by me in like a tweed jacket with leather patches, I might say, good morning, professor. Um, even if I didn't know them to be a professor, but you know, they're the word just, yeah, I agree. Chef inside the kitchen. When, when my guys say it as a, as to be respectful, I'm great with that, but even then, I half the time I'm like, honestly, I don't know who you're talking to. Are you talking yeah. to me or this or the guy other over guy here? Or, or like, guy. just you're, yeah, Kevin's you're fine. Like you're like not 10 people in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Could be called chef. Yeah, this isn't like old France where only one guy gets that word. Like nowadays, we call all of us this this word. So, so the menu at Cold Beer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, the name. Let's let's go over all the names. Let's do it. The naming is interesting. Yeah, and actually. Somebody called out something about Eater the other day. And Eater, uh, it, which is the food community website, sort of like the drivel on chefs and what they do and who's opening and closing. And uh, they used to have that death watch, which always – Yeah, that was gnarly, man. Like, it. It's yeah. like, man, you really – like somebody's losing sleep over paying taxes and going out of business right. and you're saying they're on a death watch. Yeah, it's like, like I, I don't – they must get it mixed up in thinking that somehow any time that happens that anybody celebrates. Like I don't – I don't care if my number one competition goes out of business. It makes me sick to my stomach. Like, I know. I hate it. Yeah, because you know that feeling. Yeah, you know it sucks. that wood fire yeah, when you awful. serve zero people. Ugh. But this was an interesting conversation that was uh, about – this was from John Birdsall, who's a food writer. And he commented on Twitter about the young guns uh, and cited an article about the, the complexity of grammar when you say young guns and what it actually means and the, maybe in the wake of – Atrocities mm. happening across the mm. nation. Maybe they should change that. Yeah. What's the flat gun gun show? It's been not, it. You know, it was existent before. You know, this. So as as timing would have it, we announced um, gun show to the world, and then six days later, the Sandy Hook Elementary shootings took place, and 
so you, if you want to talk about tragic timing, like it yeah. couldn't be worse than that. And folks immediately called for me to change the name of the restaurant. And I said, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't give much explanation for it because I'm a notoriously stubborn human being. Uh, but I was waiting to tell the story. I wanted to wait and explain the name gun show when I, when I felt like doing it. And, um, so I've gotten a ton of flack over the years up until like all the way up to the margin when I explain what the name means and then everyone goes silent and a lot of times people cry and then they leave me alone for it. So, so do you mean? want the story? Here it goes. All right. So, um, neither of my parents graduated high school. My, um, my dad worked three jobs, seven days a week, literally my entire life. And so because of the financial struggles that my parents found themselves in, like it was really difficult for them to commit a lot of time to anything or that, that my sister and I did outside of school. They wanted to be able to take care of us and provide us with a better life. But that sort of meant that my dad had to work round the clock to keep clothes on our back. And so he didn't make the football games or the baseball games or the graduation ceremony. Like he, it just wasn't a possibility. And, um, but I knew my whole childhood, the sacrifices that they were making. And, you know, when I was a kid, I was, I'd always did really well in school. And I was on this very clear trajectory to sort of go in, in one direction. And, um, and a lot of that, it was because my dad had made a ton of sacrifices. And when the day came that I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore and that I was going to do something else, my dad was really clear and said, you know, you're going to have to your, your options in life now means that you're going to have to make a lot more sacrifices than everyone else. You're going to have to work harder than everyone else. And you, you have to promise not to forget where you came from. And, you know, as an 18 year old, when you hear that, you go like, okay, dad, no problem. And as life would have it, this industry is one that teaches you a lot of those lessons very quickly. You know, you are you understand sacrifice and hard work so quickly in this business that, that that part wasn't, didn't really, that wasn't difficult to understand. But the not forgetting where you came from part just never really resonated until one day I was at Woodfire and I was thinking about it and I was like, man, my parents have never been to dinner here. That's super weird. And so I decided to call my mom and ask her why she and my dad had never come to dinner. And she kind of, you know, tried to skirt around the issue. And I was like, you know, you don't have to pay for dinner. Like, I know you guys don't have a lot of money, but you don't have to pay. Like it'd be free. And she said, it's not that Kevin. It's that your dad is really worried about embarrassing you. And I was like, why would he be worried about that? And she goes, you know, he spent his whole life trying to make it possible for you to graduate to a different level of society than he has ever had a chance to be a part of. And he doesn't want to ruin that for you. He loves you and he's proud of what you've done. And, but he doesn't want to do anything to stand in the way of seeing you be successful. And it hurt me really badly. In fact, it was the moment in time that I recognized I'd already had inklings of this, but that was when I solidified my decision to leave. And so... I went home and I talked to my wife about it and then I went to work the next day and I signed over my ownership of Woodfire to my business partners and I said, I'm sorry, you know, I'll work here for the next year and find you a chef, but I have to leave. I can't do this thing that excludes the people who gave me this chance in the first place. And so I went to work on Gun Show and I committed to doing that on my own with no investors. I felt like almost like I was having to tithe, like it was penance for, for mistakes I had made because I had forgotten where I had come from. And so when it came time to name the restaurant and I spent a lot of time thinking about it, I wanted a name that I thought would convey that message to my father, a man who's a man of very few words. And he and I have never really been great at communicating with each other. And so I thought about the fact that through all this work, my dad, the one thing we would do is that 
every couple months there was a local gun show at a farmer's market, basically our flea market near our house. And he would take off between jobs on Sunday and we would go. And that was our father son bonding experience. And so I named it gun show and I called my dad and I said, I'm sorry for forgetting all these things. I'm sorry for forgetting these things that you said to me. I just want you to come into this place. And so I know you'll go to a gun show. So there's no more excuses. And so that's the, that's the name. That's great. And that adds clarity to it. I mean, I, I don't think you'd be uh, so stubborn as to not have a good reasoning behind it. Yeah. You know, when, when it was questioned. <laughs> yeah. So. Folks were like, is it, you know, they, everybody assumed it was a political standpoint. And I have to remind people that I, I'm not unpolitical, but you'll, I'm extremely quiet about those things. And that's only because of my background. I know you're not, that's okay, man. <laughs> hey, I know a lot of people who are very vocal about it. I have never been comfortable. I'm so fixated on this exclusion component that I, that I even don't want to exclude people who don't agree with me. Like right. I just don't, I, so I've, I, I just kind of keep my mouth shut, um, for better or worse. You know, I'm just, I'm still at that point in my life where I'm, I don't want anyone to think they're not welcome in my establishment. So um, maybe some days I should draw a line harder in the sand, but I just can't bring myself to do it yet. So yeah, then revival. I mean, yeah. revival pretty much makes sense. Yeah, and uh, my, uh, you know, I felt like since I'm using my grandmother's recipes, my grandmother was a very avid churchgoer, like a very spiritual person, and um, I wanted a name again, even though she wasn't still here with us. I wanted a name that felt like something she'd be comfortable with. And where so, did your grandmother live? Um, so my, I had my mom's mother who I'm making reference to is like old Atlanta. They lived, uh, now where, uh, Woodward Academy is okay. so that, you know, their home is still actually their home has been annexed as part of the campus at this point. Um, it's still there, which is kind of cool, but that's where she grew up. And, um, and then my mom's mom, who I call my granny is from the Appalachian mountains, like, uh, Walhalla, South Carolina. So the mix of their foods has influenced revival. And again, I was like, you know, what kind of name sounds like something that would embody that, that they'd be comfortable with, because I want these people to feel like, you know, this was built for them. And so we settled on the name revival without even recognizing that we built it on church street, which just turned out to be sort of a double entendre, yeah. um, you know, a fortuitous event, but yeah, but it's a definitively Southern restaurant. For so sure. I, I have kind of spent a lot of my life as a interloper in the South and, uh, <laughs> displaced Canadian lost. Um, but to you, to, so what's the, when somebody asks you from they're from overseas or whatever, mm. they ask you, what is Southern food? What's right. the quick and concise, the mix answer the mix. Oh man, sense. I have a really hard time with this. I'm it's still, hard... I'm still terrible at answering this question because my answer, I think only opens the door to more questions, which is when they say, what is Southern food? The first thing I, I blast out immediately is, it's hyper-regional, so there is no such thing as just unified Southern food. Like what I call Southern is really an expression of the two regions that I know well, which is the um, the sort of plantation-level cuisine because my mother's family is kind of old Southern money. And so I know that style of Southern food, which looks a lot more like continental cuisine than it does anything else. And then I know Appalachian cooking because that's where my dad's family is from. I don't know – really more than anybody else would know about the regions outside of that. So I, I like to pit it with the caveat of these are the two areas that I know. And it happens to be that Atlanta is the natural crossroads for those two cuisines. And so you end up with something that is almost Atlanta cuisine, which is where they kind of pick and choose from both camps and add in sort of the African-American component to it. And you end up with a very specific type of Southern food that has a lot of moving pieces to it. 
But for me, Southern food has always been identified by a couple components. One is uh, a utilization piece, which is that uh, there's a waste not want not capacity to Southern food that, that shows up. So there's no such thing as like we only use the bottom of this or the top of that. Like everything gets used, period. Maybe not in the same dish, but often in the same dish. The second is that it's hyper seasonal. In my opinion, it's the most seasonally rooted regional cuisine we have in the United States. Uh, they simply don't make certain dishes other than in the time of the year when the stuff is around and people you don't celebrate make tomato it. Pie in right? Yeah, and January. people relish that. They don't. They don't. They're not begrudging. Like I wish we had more tomatoes. They actually just get really excited about peach season and tomato season, and the fact that you know my granny will only make cream corn out of one variety of corn, which apparently nowadays you can only get for about three weeks. And so that's just the way she works. Like she doesn't switch varieties in her mind. It's only made this way. And so I love that. I love how disciplined Southern cooks have always become with seasonality. And the last, and this is the one that surprises people when they hear me say it, is that it's an extremely vegetable centric cuisine. And everybody goes, no, 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 it's very meat heavy. And I, I have to stop them and say, meat in some form or another factors into nearly everything, but it's usually used as a seasoning. It's, it's a flavor. It's, it's, a flavor. Yeah. it's not actually, they couldn't afford it as a main plate item. It's, yes, is there pork in a lot of stuff? For sure. But it's not like giant wads of it. It's actually much more vegetable driven than it is anything else. It's a ham hock. That's yeah. That's you know, it's the fact that you five dishes right. in small. Amounts yeah. Keeping the renderings of things to add back to something else to both for flavor and also for the nutritional component to a lot of pe- folks forget like Southerners, because it was a very agrarian society, they needed caloric bombs. They needed heavy, you know, food dense in calories because they did manual labor every day. Twelve you know? hours a yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. And, and now we live sedentary lives. <laughs> right. So we could probably back off that a touch. Yeah, we could probably yeah. back off. <laughs> Eat more of just the greens, no meats at all. Yeah. Um, so, and then the name for cold beer, yeah. explain that because it is the simplest name, but it's, it's a pretty brilliant name. Right. So it's, it's, it's a cold beer has it, the name sort of means a couple things. So the, the real actual Genesis point for cold beer is again, from my childhood, um, going camping with my dad and all of his brothers, we would always go up to ru- you know, roughly like where my family's from. So that sort of Southern mountain range in South Carolina. And there there's, it's just, there's, it's not a town. It's just like middle of nowhere. And there's really nowhere to go eat or anything like that. But coincidentally, near the trailhead where we would start to hike in was kind of a roadside bar pub kind of thing. Um, And I have no idea what it was called. But what I do remember is that painted on the side of the building in what is clearly house paint and somebody with just a brush, not even a stencil, they had painted the words cold beer on the side of it. And I just as a kid thought that was the funniest thing in the world because in my head as a child – it, you didn't have to say cold and beer. They were like, it was like, of course it's cold. Yeah. Like, why would it not There's be cold? Built-in redundancy. Y- yeah, and so I just, I just thought that was hilarious. And so, um, as I grew up, I just that image has been burdened in my head. And so I would jokingly refer to. Um, when you would build a bar, like we should just name it cold beer because everybody likes cold beer. Like it's you know it's just sort of unanimously liked. And um, as time went on and we actually started to conceive this restaurant that was meant to be a sister to Gun Show, uh, one of the things that we knew we had to do out of the gate was that we had to give it a name that sort of in many ways didn't imply what it did. And um, we felt like it would be kind of funny to give the most rudimentary, obvious name to a bar possible 
especially if it was a bar that wasn't in any way rudimentary or obvious. And so it felt, this is just my brain going on. It's like weird field trips that it takes sometimes and, and thinks that, you know, I find myself much more hilarious than the world finds me. Well, so. it's, I think it's also like, it, it, I, I love really simple uh, verbiage on menus because I'd much rather than be impressed with the plate of food that actually yes. comes out. Yes, yes, yes. The, then poke fun at the verbiage of like sort of illustrative and you know right. how many farms can I mention right. in? A, I remember you know. years ago, and I don't remember whose menu this was, but I remember the word. Um, it was it was written as a symphony of summer flavors. I remember reading that on someone's menu years ago, and I like as a as a like young twenty year old, and I just thought that was the most pretentious shit I've ever heard in my entire life. It, it and really um, and so I think ever since then I've gone with the extremely simple like roasted rabbit. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you the rest when you get yeah. it. Like, but all you really need to know is this. And so we just kind of we did the same thing here. We're like, you know, it's uh, I can't come up with a name that will concisely explain to you all of the moving pieces of this business. So instead, I'm just going to highlight yeah. one of the things we have here. Yeah, but, but it's a nice way, too, <laughs> of, of uh, letting people understand that it's a wide-spectrum restaurant. Yeah, it's, right. you know, this is the entry point is just cold beer. Well, right. this is actually what we offer. And right. it's much more diverse when you yeah. realize that. So what, yeah. what kind of food is it, cold beer? So cold beer, in some respects, if you've been to Gun Show, I think you'll find it familiar. It's There's no such thing as like apps or entrees or dessert. It's just kind of food. And that's because in, in my head, like when I go to a bar, I don't really order that way. I just kind of order as I want more stuff. And I, I don't really care whether it's you know this category or that. And so we just said, well, let's just make – Things are whatever size they have to be. So, you know, a scallop isn't very big, so that's pretty small, but a ribeye is pretty big, so that's big. And, it, you know, as rudimentary as that is, um, the food, I guess you would call it modern American. We we let Brian Baxter, who we brought on from Bastion in Nashville, really, um, you know, I sat down and talked to him for hours about where I wanted his head to be when he started writing his menus. And then he wrote a preliminary one and emailed it to me, and I read it, and I sent it back with some comments. And we did that a couple times until I think – so I felt like he was understanding if I was going to sit down and write it for you, this is what I would write. And so once we were in that place, he did a tasting for me, and I really loved the food. And so I think that it's really expressive of a collaborative effort between the two of us. So you do see some modernistic stuff because of his time with Sean um, for so many years, with Sean at Husk and, and at McCready's. But you also see an understanding of what we were trying to do, which was that we didn't want a person who was walking down the belt line – who just wanted to come in for a simple, easy, lighthearted, fun meal to feel like they were being talked over or, or somehow elevated above. But at the same time, I wanted – I didn't want you to have to sacrifice experience to come to my new place because you were going, you know, we, I, I want to go out for my anniversary but, you know, this is not probably nice enough. And so we were trying to figure out how can we encapsulate both and we said, let's let the food be amazing. Let's let the drinks be amazing. Let's spend all of our time focusing on the execution of those, and then let's build a room that just happens to be really fun and lighthearted, and so we can kind of bridge the gap, you know? Bastion, so, where Brian was working in Nashville after Husk at Bastion. Bastion's a really good restaurant, and I, I, the menu structure there is really interesting. Yeah. It's that grid of, like, whatever, nine or 16 things. I forget if it's four by four or three by three, and you can kind of pick them all or – I don't know. It's, right. it, and again, it's just kind of plates of food that you right. can articulate into yeah. a multi-course meal or you can just have a couple of things and enjoy yourself. Yeah, so. and that's what's cool is that so far we've seen that we have both. And we were – you know, this was the fingers crossed. I hope it works this way and it so, so far has, which is that 
we'll get four people who will come in and order six plates of food and share it. And then we'll get two people come in and order all 16 menu items and we'll course them out and they get a tasting menu, you know? And so because of the way it's made up, we can go either direction but, for a guest and I it works. I think that flexibility is key in a business sense yeah. these days in restaurants. It's like we have to be more agile yeah. and figure out diff- different ways of pleasing a lot of people. We can't just be a destination fine dining restaurants right. anymore. We have to like broaden the spectrum. Right. Correct. And it's like, you know, I, as much as I love that, like the amount of effort that goes into orchestrating a multi-course tasting menu dinner, I, I find myself personally, even sometimes when I've been looking forward to this meal for weeks or months, I get two thirds of the way through and I'm ready for it to be over. And there's no way for it to be over because it's so orchestrated and structured that it can't be. And what I like about what we're doing is that we're fine if you build a tasting menu one item at a time and you just order a dish at a time like that doesn't in any way throw off our kitchen we're built to accommodate that and so that that experience can go on as long or as short as you want it to and have as much complexity or as little as you want it to and and for me i think we've learned to gain confidence in this idea that if we build great dishes like you're smart enough. Pick whatever order you want to eat them in. It yeah. doesn't, I don't care. Like I'm it's fine. You. Yeah. You're the customer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. And honestly, the other night somebody was like, I really just want to try the blueberry dessert right out of the gate. I'm going to order some other stuff, but I, and I'm like, cool. Sounds great. Here's your dessert. Like, and they did. And then they ordered lamb ribs behind it and they Caesar ordered a cobia Lee and you're like, fine. You Caesar know? Lee did a restaurant once and yeah, where it went backwards. Where he, did the yeah. whole menu I remember. So yeah. I was and like, that's so Honestly, like weird. years ago when I was young, I got, I was really fixated um, on this idea that it goes this and then this and then this thing. And if it didn't go in that order, it was ruined. And that was too diva. And, you know, as time went on, I just recognized that that was just, that was my own insecurity kicking in. That wasn't, that didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, I still think there's a place for the traditionalism of kaiseki meals or things like that that are very structured in accordance to where is the acid component coming in at the end and the pickles and et cetera. So there's structure and formality of those things. But I don't think that formality has to exist in in everything. Right. And you also, I think, can recognize as a chef that, and this sounds harsh, but I'm going to throw it out to the world and I'll get flack for it either way. Not every restaurant has the talent to pull off a hyper-orchestrated meal. They all think they do. But truthfully, to do it really, really well, man, it's uh, there's not that many folks who actually can, can take all the nuance and subtlety and turn it into something special. Yeah. So it was the in in this these are the opening weeks of cold beer. Yeah. Uh, what's the best plate of food that you've seen come out of that kitchen in the last week? Mm. So we just changed a dish yesterday, and I think it's the one I'm most happy with. Um, we wanted to do a raw scallop dish because Baxter and I both really like raw scallops. We think they're delicious. I like how I. I struggle in that I like I love a roasted or a grilled or a seared scallop, but for me they lose a lot of their oceanic quality when you do that. Like then they become an interesting textural dish, but they don't really have a. T- you can't taste scallop over the sear and everything else. And so I wanted to do a raw scallop dish because I think the flavor of a raw scallop is a really sweet, very you know subtle, delicate oceanic flavor. And so we started out with a dish that had juniper and lemon verbena and this and that and the other and it fell completely flat. Like it did not no one got it. We liked it. The rest of the world thought it was weird. And so we um we had to eat our pride and go back to the drawing board on something. And so we landed back on a dish that took some elements of sort of Peruvian ceviche in in that leche de tigre and uh, you know a little bit of ahi amarillo and then we were able to take it 
and add some elements, some acid in, in non-traditional ways, um, like a passion fruit and, and bringing a, a sweet corn element in there that, that didn't overpower the scallop. And so we still got what we wanted, which was to, to effectively serve a raw scallop dish that was subtle, but we also got to bring in some elements that help people understand it because they went, okay, I get it. Ceviche. Yeah, no problem. Okay. My mind knows where you're going with this. This other thing was like a scallop snow cone and it meant nothing to anybody, but me and Baxter who'd went on a weird mental trip with it, you know, but that's a common thing with chefs these days. And it's something I fight against in my, on my own being in with the chefs who I employ is that, you can have a great idea in food. I have to be able to explain it to the people out right. there ordering it. So it has to have some thread to reality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we're not the restaurant that's just going to be able to come up with something right. El Bui-esque. Right. And-, and, I, and I said, you know, when we were working on it, that if it was gun show, the first dish would have worked because I would have taken it to the table and I could have told you where we were going with this and you would have been, okay, and then you would have eaten it appreciating the fact that that we that this is where we wanted this to go. And even if it wasn't your favorite dish, it would have resonated more because of the connection that I just provided you with. At cold beer, we don't have that element. This, you know, it, you have a server, you order from a menu. And so um it would just show Nuance up as can yeah, disappear. Yeah, it disappeared completely. Yeah. And so I think that this new dish that just went on the menu yesterday is probably the prettiest plate of food just from the dynamic colors that are involved. But I also think that it's a dish that is it's tiny, it's bright, it's very light, it's very cold. And so there's there's things, there's elements about it that that are really refreshing in a hot environment, but then it also hits with a surprising sledgehammer of flavor while not covering up that very delicate, soft scallop flavor. And so I think it's sophisticated while also being a crowd pleaser. And it's hard to do those two things at the same time. Yeah, but it's it's when you nail it, you know, right? You know that. Feeling. Yeah, exactly. And, and I and I was really happy with it last night because I've been you know I've spent three weeks hearing not so great feedback eh, on this other one, and then finally to put something on the menu that unanimously every guest that had it was like, wow, I, that was my favorite dish. Then you go, okay, we're starting to hum. Plus, there's a and you know this feeling. You've been there so many times. There's a joy when you as the chef owner know that you are connecting with the chef de cuisine and that, and that the two of you are starting to kind of hum and see eye to eye. And, and before I have to explain something, you've, that person's already brought something to me that, that there's a confidence that all of a sudden settles you down. Um, Because I think in the back of every chef owner's mind at any given point, when they open a new restaurant or bring on a new chef is, am I going to have to take back over this menu in order for my vision to be seen, to be executed. executed. And, um, it's nice when you when you go. Nope, I think I think this it's guy nice or this girl or, or yeah, like people. I feel like this person gets it. And, and and I think that those days of the singular chef voice are it's they're necessarily behind us. Yes, yeah. and that I think that teaming with people and understanding that we're more powerful. If you find a chef de cuisine who you work with, who yeah. who you know is a great companion in, right. in the workload. I think that's key. The next step though is going to be helping the dining public understand that relationship because they are still very, in my opinion, caught up in the idea that it's either all my ideas or it's all yours or it's all his or it's all hers. And we have to help them understand that, that, um, the world of food and, and restaurant creation is starting to look a lot more like a band as opposed to a solo artist. And like we're, we're recruiting new musicians who complement us, who help us create new music. That's a lot better than our singular creations were before. And so 
helping them understand that it's not that it's no longer mine or that now it's his, but it's ours is, is a challenge that we face every day. And I, and I, I mean, I'm happy to keep blazing that trail and fighting for it. And it's one of the reasons I built gun show so that people could understand because they go, wait, so that's that guy's dish. And I go, well, they're all ours. Like yep. it's his idea vetted through this group with feedback from everybody to me to say that this, while it goes to that guy, so long story short, it eventually comes back and he owns it or she owns it, but it's not, it wasn't invented in a time capsule somewhere and then released upon the world. It's, it's a, it's a, a fluid sort of living, breathing creature that has had a lot of people's input. But in that's it. one of my favorite things is to, is to tell one of my chefs a dish that I want them to do. I want you to do uh, squab with apricot and prunes and chestnuts go. Yeah. And, but to have them see the result of that and right. say, you know, I can get into the technical, technical aspect of it that I want the squad prepared this way, but then the end result is going to be very different from what I thought, yeah. but oftentimes much better. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, we just conceive some, some new menu items, you know, for upcoming changes that way. And I, and I like the idea that I can say, look, man, I, if for some reason in my head, I just, I'm really liking this idea of so-and-so and so-and-so. And I, I don't, it's as far as I got the idea. I don't have it baked any further than Run that. With it. You know, let's let's just start messing with it and see what happens. And I don't know. I love that. That is the part about our business that never gets old to me. It's the part that keeps me in it, honestly, and makes it where I haven't decided to just focus on writing books or making TV or consulting or doing this, that, or the other. Is that I get more joy out of that collaborative atmosphere than I do anything else in my work. It just it brings me life man like it's it's energy for me that i it's, can't get another it's way the most enjoyable part of chefdom these days for sure so i think that's good kevin gillespie thank you for doing what you do and cooking Thanks, great food and being in atlanta and being a good human y'all go to gun show and revival and now cold beer go to cold beer it's the biggest it's the biggest we can, the most of you can come yes most, <laughs> uh, most of you can come yeah <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. 